I welcome you back to your seats, people. We'll take a moment to get situated here. We'll go to the Lord, the word of prayer. And uh, we, the resurrection is still lingering in the air, is it not? And, and so to our theme of our uh, Bible study this morning, still going to be talking about what happened after uh, Jesus rose from the dead on that very day in the afternoon. And something amazing and intriguing and something that we can learn a lot from. And so let's ask the Lord to open our eyes. Father God, these truths are spiritually discerned. That is, we can't understand the word of God unless the word of God helps us. The living word of God, Christ Jesus, your spirit. So do the work, Father God, that you came to do to give us eyes that can see and ears that can hear someone who's invisible and intangible at the moment so that we could apply these truths, not uh, cause ourselves unnecessary suffering as the two disciples on the road to Emmaus were doing. Needless pain, Needless sorrow, lack of faith, but a happy ending. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We do thank God for happy endings. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I was supposed that it would take a lot to cause the Son of God to be astonished by human reactions. And there are a couple, couple instances in the Bible where Jesus marvels. The word means to be stunned, right? And so in the positive uh, way of understanding that in Matthew 8, there's this Roman centurion. He's not Jewish. He's guarding the peace. Uh, the Jews are under Roman occupation, Israel, that is. And so uh, he comes to Jesus. Jesus is doing all these miracles that you'll remember. And he says, Lord, he bows the knee to the Lord and says, my servant is suffering and he's in agony. Come and heal him or just uh, I need you to heal him and and Jesus says I will come and heal him and then the centurion says you know what I'm unworthy I'm not even Jewish you don't have to come to my house I'm a military man just give the order and and it will be done speak the word and he will be healed and Jesus was stunned it says he was amazed it's like what you're not even Jewish like, and he says, hey, get a load of this, everybody. I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. And so Jesus was amazed, all caps. Then in the negative sense where it says that Jesus was amazed in a bad way, he was at his hometown where he grew up 25 years. From five years old to 30, he spent in Nazareth. And so one Sabbath day, he's in the, in the um, synagogue, and it's his turn to read. And so he reads from a portion of Isaiah's scroll that's talking about him as the Messiah. And he lets them know, just so you know, these words are fulfilled today. <laughs> and they reject him. They want to throw him off the hill. And it says that Jesus was stunned. He says a prophet is usually received everywhere except in his hometown. And so he marveled at their unbelief. He was just wowed at what Jeremiah said in 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful. Beyond all things, who can even understand it? And so, yeah, Jesus is marveling, and, and sadly, it won't be the only time. He will have continue, continued uh, occasion to marvel at our stubbornness of human heart to believe his word. And so unbelief and doubt 
was taken up to the next level on Resurrection Sunday. No one should have been too terribly surprised that Jesus would rise on the third day. Because on many occasions, not just once or twice or three times, more than that, he said, we are going to Jerusalem. They are going to hand me over to the Romans. They will mock me. They will spit on me. They will flog me. They will kill me. And on the third day, I will rise over and over and over again. Nevertheless, when it all came down to it, their fear put their faith to flight. And it was the third day, right? So those sweet ladies, they come looking not for the Christ, but for the corpse with embalming spices. And even the angels seem a little bit stunned and dumbfounded. Like, And they ask the question, why are you sweet ladies looking in a cemetery for someone who's alive and well? Why, why would you do that? Uh, uh, he has, he's not here. He's risen, quote, just like he told you. Remember? Remember, ladies? Now go and tell the fellas, you know? And so the men, where are they? <laughs> well, they're either sleeping, it's early, or they're hiding out from the authorities. And what's their reaction? They dismiss the ladies and say, you're talking nonsense. Peter, James, and John. Does that not stun the Lord? His three guys, Peter, James, and John, Bible heroes. Mary comes. We've seen an angel. The angel says that he's alive and well. And they say, you're talking foolishness. And so they go and check it out, but, you know, just in case, but they don't find the Lord there, and they remain in doubt and unbelief. And so there's one more story that happens that afternoon that we hear about that we can really benefit from. And we're going to see how silly it is and how futile it is uh, to doubt and put us through, put ourselves through needless suffering. And another amazing, stunning story of unbelief headed our way on the road to Emmaus, as we call it. Now that same day, Resurrection Sunday, it's in the afternoon time, two of them, the disciples, uh, not the famous ones, the broader disciples in the broader sense of the word. You remember Jesus sent 70 out, part of that crowd. Two of them are headed home to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're talking with each other about everything that happened. And as they're talking and discussing, that's in there for a reason, a lot of talking. Uh, these things, they're talking these things uh, uh, with each other. Jesus himself comes up and walks along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So the Lord asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, blank faces, kind of downcast, and they say, one of them, Cleopas, the first to speak, are you only a visitor? Are you a stranger in these parts? You don't know the things that have happened here in these days? Well, what things, Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you know the Lord is smiling. All right. Uh, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who's going to redeem Israel. And what is more... It's the third day since all this took place. Oh, they don't elaborate why they said that. But they've heard rumors of something. Didn't he say something about the third day? Because that's why they say, well, more importantly, it's like day number three. I can see Jesus' face, you know, like, oh, oy vey. And so, yeah, verse 22, in addition, some of our women amazed us, Jesus. Oh, no, they don't know. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. 
Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, how foolish you guys are being and how slow of heart to believe all the things the scriptures, the prophets, the word of God has said. Didn't the Christ, Messiah, Christ's Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah, there it is, didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? That means, didn't he have to suffer, the Messiah, for, before he came the second time in glory? Wasn't there a need for the first coming of suffering and then the glorious return? That's what that means there. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he's walking and explaining to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself greatest sermon ever preached. Verse 28. As they approach the village to which they're going, Jesus pretends as if he's going farther. But they urge them strongly, hey, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. That's a really good point. We'll talk about that. So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread. He's taking charge. He's hosting now. It's their house. <laughs> he takes the bread. He breaks it. He thanks God. He says the blessing in Hebrew, of course, and he breaks it, and he begins to give it to them. Then their eyes are open, and they recognize him. Aha! And he disappeared from their sight. <laughs> now you see him. No, you don't. Verse 32, they asked each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road when he opened the scriptures to us? Like, of course, our hearts were on fire when he was talking. This explains it. Verse 33, they get up and return at once to Jerusalem, back those seven miles. There they found the 11 in the upper room, we find out later, and those with them, with the 11, assembled together. That's what the church means, assembled. And saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. The ones in the upper room are saying to them as they come through the door, hey, guys, hey, welcome Cleo. Hey, it's true, the Lord, <laughs> it's stealing the thunder out of there. They want to tell them, you know. And so then the two of them told what happened on the way. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, <laughs> he's appeared to us as well, how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And while they're still talking, they're in the middle of the story. Jesus himself stands among them in the middle there, and he says to them, Shalom. Shalom. So praise the Lord. Uh, that is the story. We'll break it up in four bite-sized, easy-to-digest pieces. Note-takers, are you ready? verse 13 through 17. First, you have downcast faces. The disciples are throwing themselves a pity party. They invite Jesus to join them. Uh, he's not into that. Verse uh, 18 through 24, dashed hopes. They pour out their hearts to the Lord and tell him the sad facts. And then verses 25 through 27, the disciples are disciplined. Jesus admonishes them for their lack of faith and teaches them, restores them by opening the scriptures, the word of God. And then finally, it'll be desire rekindled. The big reveal begins at Emmaus and it finishes up in the upper room. You do realize that they were in the upper room, the disciples, 72 hours earlier at the Last Supper. And so we're going to go full circle because Jesus is going to be in that same room where he washed dirty feet and gave them the whole lowdown there uh, uh, just a few nights earlier. And so let's dive in. You'll get that first paragraph there. I'll paraphrase a little bit, and we'll dive in. So uh, Sunday, a couple of the disciples are headed home to the village. It's about a two-and-a-half-hour walk, three hours, whatever, uh, verse 14, they're commiserating together, a lot of talking, 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 all the terrible things that have happened. And verse 15, as they talk and talk on, the Lord pulls up alongside incognito. Uh, verse 16, uh, he didn't want them to know that it was him. He's got some 
testing to do. Verse 17, he asked them, what are you guys talking about? What kind of discussion is this that you're having? And they suddenly just stop, pause, look like you know, deer in the headlights, like, what? You know, and their faces downcast because their hearts were broken and they didn't have a whole lot of faith. And so let's talk about this. The long road home, seven miles, probably never seemed so far away. And they're discouraged, but it's the worst kind. Oh, it's the worst kind. It's the unnecessary kind that stings you when you find out that all of your sorrows and woe and anxiety and tears and pangs and all of that were really self-inflicted. You disregarded the promises of God and lived and responded to your situation like an atheist. You know it in your head, but the way you're living and responding is like you have no faith at all, and that's why these guys were had a face that was downcast because they didn't believe. And the Lord's going to call them eventually on the carpet for that. So, yeah, you just can't have faith and fear together. They don't go together like water and oil. They'll always, you'll always have to choose. When your little world is rocked and there's some threat to your happiness, you will have to choose to go with your feelings or to go with your faith. Well, there's nothing wrong with uh, feeling uh, legitimate pain and grief. But the Lord knows when we cross over that line and we're, and we're slow to enact and engage with the promises that he's given us and the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our hearts through a difficult time. He knows the difference. One is healthy and one is not. And they've got the unhealthy kind real bad. And so... Yeah, holiday weekend, like none other, the emphasis I want you to see there, that he's emphasizing the talking, and every commentator pointed it out. Uh, First of all, in verse 14, they're talking about everything. That's a lot of talking. And the Jews like to use their hands, okay? And they like to get heated about it, right? And so verse 15, as they're talking, they're talking. Three times we need to hear this word. They're talking about everything, and as they're talking, they're discussing. Yeah, you know what he's saying? It's just that endless merry-go-round of, of words that exclude faith and embrace the spirit, not of the Lord, but the spirit of Eeyore. All right? You remember Eeyore? We're all going to die. And so that's what they were doing. And what are they talking about? They're talking about, oh, too bad. We thought he was the Messiah, but instead of ending up on a throne, he ended up hanging on a cross. Too bad, you know. And so, yeah, they're talking about the expectation. Too bad because, you know, the Bible says Israel will be exalted and he would deliver us from Roman occupation and uh, take a seat on a glorious throne, and all of our problems would be solved. Instead, the Savior of the world can't save himself. Oh, no, we're all going to die. So what else are they talking about? They're talking about, can you believe Judas, the treacherous Judas? We thought he was like one of us. And then his subsequent suicide... Oh, no, we're all going to die. And then the Roman cohort, can you believe they sent, and here's what the word cohort means, 480 soldiers went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know they're talking about that. They went up and they dragged Jesus off and then they, they mocked him and they flogged him and they very publicly executed him. And then some rich guy comes and they're talking about this and takes his body, lays it in the tomb, seals it shut with a boulder, done. Now, we'll hear later, yeah, there were rumors of an angel. The stone rolled away. The angel saying, hey, he's, he's alive. Oh, they know that, but are they talking about it? Oh, no, 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 because it's time for self-pity. And human beings, fallen as we are, we love it. Oh, we are sick. Why do we love self-pity? Most of us do. 
Well, one writer said, you know, it puts us in the spotlight. Woe is me. You know, we want to be pampered and everybody to talk nicely to us. And, you, you know, maybe Cleo could say, I need some time off work when he gets to Emmaus, you know, because I've been through a lot and all of this. He doesn't want to factor in, no, Cleo, you need to go to work with a smile because what did God promise you, Cleo? Oh, no, no, no. We just want to talk about the pain, the suffering, and the depressing turn of events at the exclusion of the truth of the word of God. And so that's a problem. We're not talking about healthy grieving. Not talking about that. When painful things happen, we should be sad. But, you know, the Lord distinguishes between unhealthy wallowing without faith and normal grieving that's good and right. And so Jesus will always come along incognito and they'll always look what he's doing. He's drawing it out. He sees they're in trouble, spiritually speaking. He wants to rekindle the hope in the flame. So he pulls up alongside all of us on our Emmaus Road and, and he starts to pull it out of us. What's going on in there? Tell me about it. Well, that doesn't seem right. Doesn't the Bible say he does the same thing to you and me when we get into this predicament? And so he pulls up alongside, and now he's walking in stride with them. And sadly, it's an awkward question, and you don't get the feeling of Jesus' question. But really, the King James comes closer with, what kind of conversation is this? It's like a parent who hears his kids being foolish in the back seat and says, what's the meaning of that? What, what, should people like you, Christian believers, be talking like you're talking? An endless merry-go-round of words that go nowhere except just milking the situation for all it's worth. Woe is me. you know. And he says, what's the meaning of this? That's what he, what, what kind of conversation are you having as you walk along the way? And it kind of stuns them. They're taken aback. They just stop, and they're staring in kind of like disbelief and really, really sad. We go on. And one of them, Cleopas, he starts pouring it all out. We just read through it, but, you know, to sum it up again, he says, you must be a stranger. Uh, you don't know all the crazy stuff? And Jesus says, I'm all ears. Cleo, I'm all ears. Tell me. Tell me what your problem is. You know, just lay it out for me. And he's like, well, I know we thought this, and we thought this, and this is who Jesus is. But, you know, sadly, we thought he was the one. But guess what? The bad guy's won. He's dead and buried. End of story. Oh, yes. And this is not good. So dashed hopes we've moved into. Now let's talk about... First of all, who are these two guys? They're not famous. In the world's estimation, who does Jesus, the son of the living God, pull up alongside? From the world's point of view, two nobodies. Not a lot of money, not a lot of fame. We don't know who they are. Doesn't matter to Jesus. They're important to Jesus, just like all of us are important. He knows us. He cares about us. The world may say, hey, you know, you're just a needle in the haystack, but you belong to Jesus. And to Jesus, he just honors us. He treats us like royalty. I mean, considering who he is and who we are and that he will come to you and start to work in your heart and life like you're the only thing that matters to him. That's amazing. And so you see that here. And so they say, hey, are you from, you know, Iraq or something? How in the world could you not know what's going on here? And so they say, it's crazy stuff, man. And he goes, okay, Cleo, what kind of stuff, right? And so, yeah, uh, tell me all about it. So, yeah, they actually, and get this, they know a lot of things about Jesus. And it's all in vain. Their experience, their knowledge, all their past time as being a disciple, every scripture they've ever learned, everything they ever know about Jesus, out the window. Useless 
Just like as if they didn't have faith at all. It's not helping them. If your knowledge about God isn't combined with faith and applied to your heart in the moment, then you have believed in vain, right? It's not helping them. It doesn't matter. Look at what they know. They know his name. They probably know what it means. They know where he's from. They know that he was a prophet. They knew that he was mighty indeed, and miracles, some of them they saw. And in word, they heard the voice of God, that authority that stunned the crowds. He didn't speak like a rabbi. He spoke like one in charge, because guess what? He made the planet. So when he speaks, you kind of feel like, whoa, he's got some authority here. I'll say, yeah, they know this. Mighty in word indeed. They know something else. They know something's going on with the third day because they say, more importantly, it's the third day. So they know about the third day. They know who's responsible. They know he was crucified. And they know who did it. They know so much stuff. Uh, They know that he promised to, to redeem Israel. That means to save Israel from their enemies. They know that there's rumors that he has risen. They admit that later. And as disciples, commentators say, they know a lot more than that. They know a lot. But guess what? All meaningless. And every time you and me go into some kind of panic or respond as if there's no God at all, and you can hear it in our conversations, round and round we go, here's the problem. Oh, no. What are we going to do? Oh, no, I can't believe that's happened. I can't believe she said that. I can't believe they did that. Oh, no, this is terrible. Round and round and round, and not one scripture, not one, oh, well, God did promise. Yes, it's look at the facts, feel the intensity of it, but factor in your faith. Factor in the word of God. Yes, this is terrible. Yes, this is hurtful. Yes, I wish this didn't happen. Yes, I wish they would change. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that's your worldview. Not looking at the things you see, but the things that are unseen because that's the eternal thing. This is what separates the men from the boys and the immature Christians from mature Christians. Right there, the inability. Because there's something... Laziness grips our hearts that says, I don't want to do the work. I don't want to believe, you know. And so you've got to combine it with faith and apply it because it's a waste of time. Imagine all that knowledge, and it doesn't help you in the day. When we lived in Japan, I did a lot of part-time on the side tutoring in English, uh, ESL, and I, I was working with some cardiologists, and I would go to Kanazawa University Hospital, and I'd sit with them. The only problem is these cardiologists were chain smokers. I'm like, this is different. I've really met a, never met a, a physician, let alone a cardiologist, who was smoking, chain smoking inside the hospital in Japan. I can only say what happened there in the 90s. Uh, but yeah, all that knowledge, doing any good? And God just says, what is wrong with you? Why are you having this conversation? What is the meaning of this? You're Christians, right? Are you or aren't you? Does God speak something to you uh, or, or not? You know, that's the thing. And so he's had enough of the conversation and they out themselves. They indict themselves. They incriminate themselves. We know this. 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 Well, the third day's here. There's something going on about the third day. I think we recall something like he said, but on the third day. But where is he? Jesus, where is he? There's nowhere to be found. Jesus. Unbelievable. So time for a little discipline here. He says to them, in the King James, it, it's, it, it gives you the, a false impression, oh fools. Jesus told us, do not call anybody a fool. The word there means moron or idiot. Okay, So not here. Here it means to be without knowledge, without sense, without reasoning, without thinking. It means unwise. 
Now, you guys, you're not using your minds the good Lord gave you. All right, that's what he's saying. He, and then he says, doesn't the Bible say? Didn't the Bible say, and don't you know full well, gentlemen? Or Listen, he's not rebuking them for struggling, being traumatized, and where's Jesus in this moment? Because he's showing that they're responsible for doing something wrong because he's correcting them and he's rebuking them. They've crossed over the line somewhere, and so he's going to rebuke them and then teach them. That's what he does, always. He'll say, hey, listen up. Slap, slap, slap. Are you a Christian or what? What kind of talk is coming out of your mouth? Why going around in circles like you don't have a God? And then he says, and then he, here's how he corrects our insanity and our self-delusion. He says, now let's go to the word of God. Didn't God say He'll take care of you. Didn't he say he'll work it all out for good? Didn't he say, if you want forgiveness, you better start forgiving? Didn't God say, if you want to be shown mercy, you better show mercy because I will not show you mercy if you're not merciful? Didn't God say that? Didn't God say, overlook the offense? Didn't God say, turn the other cheek? See, he just wants to get a word in edgewise and say, What's all of this talking about? You're not factoring in your faith. You're not, you're not living as if I'm listening to you. I'm listening to you. I'm right alongside you. You're walking with me, right? I walk with the Lord. Oh, do you? Well, that means he's right there. He's listening to the conversation, the one coming out of your mouth and the one you're having in your head while you're not factoring in his word. So he gives you a little and then he says, doesn't it say in the Bible? And it's like, oh, yeah, it does say in the Bible. And so he has a way of knowing when we're lingering a little too long over the offense. I mean, you get offended. Okay, you get over it. Right then and there, God expects you to start the journey toward healing and reconciliation. But he knows when you're dragging your feet, you're being neglectful and lazy. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Oh, that's foolish. That's foolish. It won't help you. So he's saying, you guys are willfully deciding to not regard God's word. You've dismissed everything you know for everything you feel. So he says, that's without thinking, and that's not a smart thing to do. So the problem's not in your head usually. It's in the heart, right? So what does he say? He says you're slow of heart. And this is a charge against them. Now, you know, I like what the Bible says. That in Psalm, Psalms 141, it says, let the godly rebuke me. Let them strike me on the head. It'll be a kindness. If I'm corrected, if they correct me, it's soothing medicine. Don't let me refuse it, O oh Lord. So we'll see. Because he comes and he says, you guys, in your heart, you're as slow as molasses. You're as dry as a desert. Your heart is granite. The sluggard comes in two varieties. You think he's just talking about the guy who just never likes to work and is always on the couch playing video games? He's, the sluggard in Proverbs is not just that guy. It's the spiritual lazy one. I don't want to do the work of correcting my stupid thinking, my wrong thinking, my faithless thinking. I don't want to do the hard work of letting the offense go and working toward faith, even though my situation's screaming one thing and my faith is whispering something else. It's a lot of work spiritually to tell the thing you can feel and sense and see and taste and touch. Oh, no, 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 no. God's got a higher reality to all this, and I'm going to respond that way. That's work. And spiritually immature people are lazy, and they'd rather just go around and be on the couch and this is a terrible thing, and I can't believe they did not, and all of that. It just doesn't help at all. So he'll say, doesn't the Bible say, he will keep you in perfect peace if you stay your mind on him? And the Bible say, my God will supply all your needs. What, are you, what kind of conversation is this? Stop it. Are you a Christian? That's what he's asking them. 
You like to say you are, and then in the moment when there's the test, you fail. That either means you're a weak believer or you're not a believer and you think you are one. So, you know, let God do the work in our heart. So he's like, let's do this. Let's go to the word. So he says, gentlemen, doesn't the Bible say? And so he goes to Moses, which means he goes to the first five books. He starts in Genesis. He goes, remember the Lord said he was sending a conqueror in the Garden of Eden, gentlemen, he's talking to Cleo and his friend, and he's saying the seed of the woman is a virgin-born conqueror who will get his heel wounded in the process of conquering the evil one. The heel, remember, gentlemen? And then he's still in Moses when he says, remember when God says to Father Abraham, offer up your only son, on Mount Moriah, which is the same hill as Jesus died on 2,000 years earlier, gentlemen. Don't you remember who doesn't, what Jew doesn't know Abraham had to take his only son, Isaac, who walks up the hill with the wood on his shoulder? The true Isaac, Jesus, pointing to. And so he's opening the scriptures and saying, remember in the Exodus, when the rock was following them, they would say, Moses struck the rock and it bled from its injury, living water. That was a picture. How about when the gentleman, Moses still, gentlemen, listen, when, when the serpents were biting and they were all dying, God tells Moses the remedy for the viper's sting is this bronze serpent Put it on a pole in the sign of a cross. Anyone who just looks at it and believes that that's the remedy will live and not die. So he says to them on the road, that was me. That's a picture of me. He even told Nicodemus that's a picture of him. And so he's opening the scriptures. Then he goes to the prophets from Moses. Oh, by the way, there's 300 of those. <laughs> well, we don't have time for that. I got a chart. Let me show you the chart. Yeah, that's only one page of it. There's three pages of that. So Jesus is just picking and choosing the ones. It does say all of them. So it was three hours. So the Lord is a good teacher. So boom, he's just like Isaiah, Genesis, Jeremiah, <laughs> Micah, Isaiah. All right, we can go back. And so he goes back. But he goes to, let's go to Isaiah. Here's where he goes. He takes them from Moses on the road. He takes them to Isaiah. And he says, look, look at this, guys. He, the Messiah pierced for our transgressions. In Psalm 22, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? That's a thousand years before Bethlehem even happened. A thousand years. Psalm 22 says, they pierced my hands and feet. Surely he mentioned that to them. Psalm 22. Look at the piercing of the hands and the feet. My God, my God, right? He was uh, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds were healed. Now, gentlemen, this is the Messiah, right? So he had to suffer. A lot of people don't have, haven't seen this one three chapters earlier, Isaiah 50. I offered my back to those who beat me. I offered my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Gee whiz, fellas. You, you heard that all your life in Sabbath school. He's talking about Messiah, right? And so he opens their eyes. And now the exit is coming. The sermon is coming to a close. And Jesus does something astonishing. He... They're approaching the, the, the turn lane for Emmaus, right? Jesus pretends like he's going further. He's like, okay, I guess this is it. See you later. Hope you enjoyed the Bible study. All right. But they're not having it. They passionately urge him to spend the night, come and have dinner, and it's sunset, so he agrees. What's up here? So desire rekindled. Now listen, God wants to rekindle. He looks at the smoldering wick. He doesn't want to snuff it out. He wants to nurture it. And he's the light of the world. He's going to come and he's going to bring it to life. And that's what happens here. He's, and they pass the test. So what in the world is 
the Lord doing by faking and pretending, oh, I guess I got business up ahead, you know? He's saying, listen, folks, uh, to you two guys, I'm testing you now. I just taught you. I rebuked you and taught you. Now I want to see how you're doing. Did, did you receive the rebuke? Are you interested? Do you want more? Are you spirit, spiritually interested? Are you, do you have any desire in you for me to come draw near to you? I'm the perfect gentleman. Like, I'm going, I've got people to invest in who actually love me and want me around. So I'm just saying, if you love me, if you like me, if you're interested, if you received what it said, if, if I touched your heart, could you show me? What is this thing with this one-way relationship that it's all on him? Don't you hate that in real life? Don't you hate it when somebody you really care about and love and have a friendship with, maybe, only calls when they need something? And how wonderful it feels when somebody you like likes you back and how awful it feels when you think somebody's in the relationship and you really love them, but they don't seem to really like you all that much. Sorry by their actions. It's always up to you. You always have to plan everything. You always have to reach out. The burden of the relationship lies on you. How awful is that? That's what he's saying. You guys want more? Do you want me in your life? Are you happy where you're at? Do you just want to go home and say, what was that about? Wow, he knows a lot about the Bible. That was a good Bible study. But let's get to what mattered, dinner, and we could talk to our wives about all the terrible things. Oh, it was such a long way home. We met this guy, he knows a lot about the Bible and all of this. Do you want that or do you want me? Peter, do you love me? Oh, yeah, oh, oh you know I do. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, Peter, do you love me? Do you want me? Are you just happy with your little mediocre Christian life and doing all your little things? Or do you want me to move in and like be a part of your life? Then ask me. Show something. I can't tell by looking at you that you're really interested in anything I have to offer. You seem to like when I give you stuff, but, you know, that's about it. And so that's what he's doing there. Not here, just, just there to them, right? Wink, wink. All right, yeah, so, so at the meeting, oh, by the way, Charles Spurgeon says uh, something about the word used for urging him strongly is to constrain him, which has a picture of them grab him. They're like, are you kidding me? That was the best Bible study we've ever been. You're not going anywhere. The sun's going down. You're hungry. Come on. And they put their arm on him. Come on, you're coming with us. He sits down, takes charge. What is it that broke the spell of unbelief? What was it? Uh, one commentator said his majestic regalness, how he began hosting and serving in his kind words? Or was it when he broke the bread? Very communion-esque, is it not? He breaks the bread. Now watch my wrists. When you reach out, what happens to give the bread? What happens? The sleeve pulls back. What do you see there? They won't be the first to ever have an epiphany when they realize the scars and the wounds of Jesus were for them. And then, aha! And they're like all smiles. They're like, whoa! Uh, Lord, what? <laughs> Where'd you go? And he disappears. Confirming to them, wow, that was the Lord, right? Now what is this? He's for the next 40 days, Acts chapter 1 verse 3 tells us 40 days until his ascension. He's doing this, now you see me, now you don't. He does it a lot. What's he teaching them? He's teaching them to walk by faith. He's saying, listen, I'm here in the room. Now you see me. Now you don't. Does it mean I left? No. It means I'm right here. You just can't see me. So I got to teach you the lesson. 
So now they know when he comes into the room in the middle of the conversation, he's there with them. And then when he disappears, everyone knows he didn't go anywhere. We just can't see him, but he's with us. He's Emmanuel, the with us God. But they got to learn the lesson. You see me here? Watch. Gone? I'm still there. Because then later in the day, boom, he's there again. Oh, you're here with me always. And so good news is meant to be told, so it's time to go tell it on the mountain and go back to the upper room where I told you this is John Mark's house. He who wrote Mark grew up in the upper room. His mother's called Mary, not Mary Magdalene, and not Mary the mother of our Lord, a different Mary, which always makes things a little challenging, does it not? And so they go back. They go through the door. They want to like, hey, and everyone's shouting at them. Hey, it's true. Peter got a little visitation somewhere in between all of this. The Lord singles out Peter and why? I don't know the man. I swear to God I don't know that man. I had nothing to do with that guy three times. So he needed a visit. So Jesus went to him alone and had a little time with him and restored him, no doubt. That's what that was about. And so this is an amazing thing that while they're in the middle of it and we're walking down the lane and he's just saying, and then he got to Isaiah 50 and then boom, there he is. Jesus is in the middle and he says to everybody, shalom. And man, what a time. Luke will go on to explain in paragraphs. John has it in great detail. But the, the wonder of it is he says, here I am, be not afraid. Receive the Holy Spirit and he breathes on them. What a restorative, joyful, out of, out of over-the-top experience. But guess who missed it? Somebody missed it. Who, who missed it? Who wasn't there? Thomas. Thomas, what's your problem? I have a lot to think about, okay? <laughs> this is a lot to take in, and I need a little time. I was taking a healing walk instead of congregating with God's people. I need some downtime because, you know, nobody really loved him like I did. You see, I just need some time alone. Solitude is okay. It's not a sin. Sorry. I just know people. What did he miss? The risen Lord doing the work of revealing and healing all their doubts, all their fears out the window. They're all made whole except who? Thomas. And you know what? He's not going to get it. He's not going to get it all week long. Jesus doesn't go and say, hey, Thomas, oh, I'm so glad you took a healing walk instead of congregating with God's people who had the common sense and the instinct to know by the Holy Spirit when we're in trouble, we congregate because that's where God reveals himself in a special way that he doesn't do when we're on a healing walk. Yes, he can talk to you on your healing walk, but it's a whole different ballgame when you're in the presence of his people, his love, the Holy Spirit. There's elders and pastors, and, and everything's on fire. You can't get that by yourself. You can't have church in the mountains or on the beach. You can have a Bible study by yourself there. But this is what he's saying, by the way. So Jesus doesn't go to Thomas until Thomas goes to the congregation. So when Thomas says, okay, time for me to stop taking a break, and maybe I should come out with God's people and congregate with the church. Second church service, he's with them. Jesus says, shalom, here I am again. Thomas, come here, come here. Let me give you what you need, but I'm going to do it in the congregation. That's where you're going to get it your revelation. Here's what you need. Thomas, come on, touch, feel in the congregation. That's how God works. The devil has used by either design or using the pandemic to break Christians of the most life-giving, 
most important, crucial, from God's point of view, habit of congregating. Because this is the life. This is the life. You find it nowhere else. He does something special and unique that you can only find in the congregated people of the Lord. And what the devil has done, for the first time in American history, church attendance is under 50%. Why? Because half of them have fallen out of the... Nobody wakes up in America anymore and thinks, oh, I need to be in church. It's Sunday. Nobody. Done with that for a lot of people. Millions of people do not wake up on Sunday and think church. They think couch. And some of them, and God knows who they are, some of them will say, I'm doing home church, which means I'm not going to church. That's what it means. You can sit and watch TV and open your Bible. That's not church. This is church. But the devil knows if I can get them from congregating, if I can get Thomas in his anguish and his trauma and all that he's been through, and we've been through a lot these last couple of years, if I could just get him to stop congregating, I got him. Well, we're not going to fall for that because... <laughs> How dare you tell the Christian church that they can't for the second Easter in a row not sing to the Lord? How dare you? No singing two Easter's in a row. Still, to this day, no singing. No congregating. If you're going to congregate, you have to do this and that and the other thing. Who do you think's behind that? This is not in my notes. None of this. <laughs> Where is this in my notes? It's nowhere. They congregated, and, and Jesus met them and said, Peace, my peace I give, my spirit. And they met when they weren't supposed to be meeting. They weren't supposed to be meeting, but they met anyway, and God blessed them. Let's pray together. God, thank you. It's a complicated time in this life, God, but we are still here with you because we get it. We feel like, okay, there's some trouble, <laughs> and we're in our doubts and fears and anxious times, and you put it in our hearts to congregate where you reveal truth to us, and you restore us. This is the place that happens. God, so protect us. Protect this precious meeting time. No, not just at the Rock, but churches in our county and all over the state and in the world. Holy Spirit, guard us, protect us. Give us the boldness and the courage that we need, the truth to be uh, wise as serpents and harmless as doves and to continue with the beautiful gift of assembling together with the good news and the risen Lord in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rock's podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.